If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 10. We will be reading from verses 22 through 30 in just a moment. Last week, we talked about the love of our good shepherd. We know that Jesus loves us because he has laid down his life for us. He has laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He has laid down his life to protect us from those wicked things in the world. His love was spoken of as priceless, as personal, as particular for his sheep, as planetary for the entirety of the world, and also permanent. And as we've considered this aspect of his being a shepherd, we have more to fill in on that picture of a shepherd. We talked last week that there's kind of two ways to view Jesus as a shepherd. And one of the popular ways is to view him as gentle and meek and mild, as one who cares for and loves his sheep. These pictures of him holding a white fluffy sheep and carrying them to where he needs to be, that might be representative of the love of Jesus. But shepherds are not just men of love. They are men of action. They are men of strength. They aren't just people who hold fluffy sheep. They are people who have to fight off wolves and bears to protect those sheep. And so, as last week we considered the love of Jesus, let us this week consider the strength of Jesus. Not just in that he cares for us, but how he cares for us. In fighting off our enemies for us and making us secure and giving us peace. Jesus doesn't just love us, but he loves us in strength. His love must have, if it is to accomplish what he wants it to, if it is to accomplish what the Father wants it to, it must have strength. It must be armor for us. It must protect us. And indeed, I hope that we might see from these verses how Jesus does just that. So let us turn to John chapter 10 and begin reading in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who, is <clears throat> who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of our God. As we go to this passage today, let us see first that Jesus' strength is deliverance. His strength is Indeed, deliverance. The feast that is mentioned here is distinct from all the other feasts that are mentioned in John in the fact that it is not affirmed or demanded by the Old Testament. It comes much after the close of the Old Testament. It happens about the time when the Jews have come in, about 167 years before Christ was born. The Jews have returned to their homeland after being exiled to Babylon, but as they've come back and they've rebuilt, they've found that that exile never really ended. There's always people there to oppress them, even as the books of Nehemiah and Ezra attest to. There's always surrounding nations that want to seek their end. And the Syrians were part of those people. And about 167 BC, the, Sirius, or the, this, the Syrian emperor, Antiochus Epiphanes, had run through Judea, and he set up in the temple a pagan altar and sacrificed a pig, desecrating the temple. He severely oppressed the Jewish people. It was a capital offense to even have in your possession a copy of the Jewish scriptures. 
Under this, the Jews had to resist. They had no choice. And so a man named Jacob Maccabeus stood up and started a resistance. You might know him from the book of the Maccabees, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, apocryphal books that tell the story of what he has done. That word Maccabeus is a word. It's not just a name. It is actually the hammer. So his name is Jacob the Hammer, which is a fantastic name, by the way. Uh, if, if you are ever known as somebody the Hammer, uh, unless your arm and the hammer, that might be different. But it's a much better nickname than what most generals get. So you've got Alexander the Great. Like, that's, a, that's weak. We have, we have clowns who call themselves the Great. Uh, no, one, no clown ever called himself the Hammer. So it's a, it's a much better moniker. He got this name because he was actually a hammer against the Syrians. As, as many weaker forces do, when faced with a superior force, he turned to guerrilla warfare. And in doing that, he was able to force the Syrians back out of Judea. And they reclaimed the temple. And in reclaiming the temple, they rededicated the temple, which is why this is called the Feast of Dedication. They rededicated the temple in the month of December. This is what has now become known as Hanukkah. It is fitting that we are speaking of this even today. In Hanukkah, you have the menorah of eight candles. Each one of those candles is there because there was eight days of celebration after the dedication of the temple again. Or as Adam Sandler might say, eight crazy nights. It is closely related to the Feast of the Tabernacles precisely because of the joyous celebration and also the feature of light that plays a prominent role in both of these. This is exactly what's going on here. But John doesn't just leave us with that. He also tells us that Jesus was in Solomon's colonnade. This wasn't actually Solomon's. You'll remember that during the exile, which led to the Jewish having to come, the Jews having to come back into their territory, the entire temple was destroyed. And so this one was the remade colonnade by Herod the Great, who doesn't even deserve the name the Great as though he were a clown, is more like, you know, Herod the Trite or Herod the Butcher or something like that. He was a tyrant. And he wanted to make a name for himself, so he rebuilt the temple. All of these could just be color commentary. It could be a way of marking a time distinction as the, the chronology of his narrative is going forward. It could be to give some, some sense of, of the weather and, that Jesus was speaking in. And maybe he says he goes to the colonnade because he was, he was cold, and this would have been sort of against the wind. It's doubtful to me that he means it for that. It's doubtful to me because John just doesn't seem to care much about setting the scene, and he doesn't care much about giving us color commentary on things. He cares much about telling us about Jesus. So I think that this does indeed tell us about Jesus. There were always going to be enemies on every side for the Jews. They couldn't escape it. They couldn't escape it when they came back into the land. They couldn't escape it when they took the land in the first place. Even up to today, there's always going to be enemies of the Jews. They are on every side. The enemies are always pressing close. The enemies are always seeking their destruction. No matter how much land they have, no matter how much military might they gain, no matter how politically savvy they might be, there are always going to be enemies pressing down upon them. And that is because there is one enemy that stands behind them all, one enemy that David could never kill, one enemy that Maccabeus could never get to. And no political savvy could ever have an effect on because he cannot be appeased and he cannot be reached in compromise. That enemy is no less than Satan, who ever, ever eats and prowls and presses on people. But Jesus was sent to do the very thing that military might and political solutions could never do. He was sent to put an end fully to the enemies of the people of God. 
Jesus is strong to deliver us, whether that be from the mouth of a lion or from the end of the spear or even from the flaming arrows of Satan. Friends, with Jesus as your shepherd, there is no enemy to fear. There is no one who can crush you. There is no one who can take you away from the love of God. As Luther has said, even one little word shall fell him. No matter how strong and mighty Satan might be, is nothing to our shepherd. You may suffer, you may hurt, but that is Jesus moving you to a better place. Even as we consider many of the, the narrative passages in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, as we, we do this time of year, we have this theme of Jesus' advent and Jesus coming to this world, a prominent theme of God delivering his people from their enemies. Zechariah, after his tongue is loosened again, who is the father of John the Baptist, prophesies and says this in Luke 1, 68 through 71. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This was the task of Jesus. It was the task of Jesus to put an end to all those who hate us. They, they celebrate in the dedication the fact that their enemies were driven away and that the temple of God was here. Now a greater temple of God is here and the greatest enemy will be pushed away. This is the promise of Jesus Christ. This is what he has come to do. And it is his strength to show him triumphing over his enemies even through his death wonderful passage in the book of Revelation chapter 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And once he mentions lion there, you expect for him to triumph like lions triumph with huge paws pressing down on the necks of their enemies and their teeth gnawing at them. But that is not how this lion conquered. John looks up he says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He is the lion. He does protect, but he does so as a lamb. But he is alive again. This is the strength of Jesus, to abolish all of our enemies. This is the only place where your enemies will ever truly be defeated. Money, fame, and power will not do it for you. And if you think that you don't have enemies, that you are meek and mild and humble and you can fly under the radar, that might be true for most of your earthly enemies. It is not true for your spiritual ones. Satan loves to crush the small. It is those who he picks on the most. Satan does care about you. And there will be a day where he will accuse you before God and he will lay out all that you have done wrong and he will ask for God's crushing defeat to come upon you, his crushing wrath to come upon you. And in that time, your only defense against your accuser will be nothing less than Jesus Christ has died for me. And therefore, Jesus is the only one who can promise you eternal life because he is the only one who can defeat your enemies. He can defeat both your sin and he can defeat Satan. And he will put an end to all things that would keep you from your creator. He is mighty to save, for his strength is deliverance. But secondly, his strength is discerning. He's not just strong to deliver us, but he is discerning in how he does this. Jesus isn't walking around flexing his strength at every possible time. 
He knows when to do so and he knows when to be quiet about it. The Jews come up and they ask, listen, just be plain with us. Just tell us the truth. Are you the Christ? Open your mouth and say these words. I am the Christ. And Jesus looks at them and says, eh, no, I'm not going to do that. The question becomes, why is he so reluctant? Everywhere we turn, whether it's in John or Matthew, Mark or Luke, he's very reluctant to take on the title that we in the church so freely give him as the Christ. He, he's just very reluctant to take it on. There's probably two reasons, especially here in the book of John. There's two reactions that people might have to it. First, hate. They actually hate Jesus, and this is nothing more than a trap. And so they're trying to trap him by having him open up his mouth and say, yes, indeed, I am the Christ. The word Christ is nothing but the word Messiah, which is nothing but the word anointed one, which is clearly a reference to him being anointed as king. He would, in effect, be saying, I am the king of the Jews. And by saying, I am the king of the Jews, they would very easily bring down Rome's wrath upon him. And there's no doubt that they would do that. Rome doesn't much take for foreign kings. They don't take to him anymore when they come up from their own ranks. Judea was controlled by Rome. And Rome gave them a bit of freedom, but that freedom would be crushed if ever they thought that they were trying to bring forward a king to challenge them. And so Jesus doesn't mention the fact that he is the Christ specifically, I think, at least in part, because he doesn't want his day to come yet. His time is not yet. But it's not just that they would hate him. Many of them would also hail him. They would hail him as king. He would come and say, I am indeed the king. And they would try to make him king the way they think he should be the king. They would put a crown on him. And they would ask him to defeat their enemies through military might and through the power of the kings of old, the way David put an end to the nations around them. As a matter of fact, they've already done something like this, seeing that he can feed 5,000 people. They've already, in our gospel, tried to present him as king back in John chapter 6, verse 15. They tried to make him king by force. They think that he's going to lead them the way all the other kings lead them. But that's not how Jesus is going to defeat their enemies. And that is not how Jesus is going to claim victory. The crown that they would place upon him is a crown of beauty and of glory and the glory of the earth. But that is not the crown that Jesus was to wear. Jesus was to wear a crown of thorns. He was to take on the defilement of the cross. He was to die as an outcast. He was to be rejected by Jew and Gentile alike. That was to be his crown. That was to be his glory in the world, his rejection by the world. And he was going to accept that crown and wear it proudly for the salvation of his people. If he is hated, the end will come too soon. If he is hailed, a misunderstanding of what it means to be the Messiah will be rampant among his people and they will be forever confused about what he has come to do. So Jesus plainly doesn't do what they want him to do. Instead, he says, you should know. Look at the works that I've done. He's healed a lame man. He just recently healed a blind man, born blind from birth. And he will, very briefly in the future, bring a man back from the dead. He says, you should know from these things that God is with me, that God is working through me. They should look to the works and see that God is testifying to who Jesus is through these works. The question from chapter 10, the verses that we didn't actually get to last week, should really be in the back of our minds when we read these. Verse 19, further up in John 10. 
There was again a division among the Jews because of these words, talking about the metaphor of the sheep. Many of them said, "Ah, he's got a demon and he's insane. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? What are we going to make of this Jesus? We want to think that he's a demon because he's saying things that are outlandish. But if he's saying things that are outlandish, how can God possibly be backing him and doing the mighty works that he's doing? Better yet might be John 7, 31. When many of the people believed in him, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? What more could the Christ do? Not more than what this Jesus is doing. No one can do these works as the blind man has just testified in John chapter 9 unless God is with him. If this man were a sinner, he could do nothing. These things were not done in a corner. They were done publicly. Everyone knew of them. Everyone had heard of them. They were all well known. The works define him just as well as words could ever do. So Jesus does have to walk a fine line here. He has to be careful not to announce himself as the Christ, lest hatred or hailing come upon him from the people. Lest he lead them in a misunderstanding, he lose his own sheep, or the, the Gentile rage comes down upon him too early. But he can also not deny himself. He cannot possibly stand in front of people and say, I am not the Christ. So he points to his works. He points not to his own testimony, but to the testimony that the Father is giving about him. His strength is discernment. He's able to discern where he speaks and where he doesn't speak. He's able to walk wisely in the world, to not be trapped into misunderstanding or to be trapped into their own hatred of him. He would not simply increase his favor with them, although he could. He would not simply get the kingdom without suffering, although he could. He does not wish to clear his name for his own name's sake, although he should. But instead, he keeps himself hidden so that he might be crucified, so that he might be made a king the way God the Father would have him be made a king. He acts wisely and selflessly and refuses the laud of the people. Friend, this is a great act of humility and it's one that we ought to model in our own lives. Do we live in such a way that we actually live for the honor and the glory of other people and not for ourselves? Do we want the attention from the things that we have done or do we continually deflect to others and show them honor above the honor that we think we deserve? What's more, do we live out our love for people well enough that people know that we love them without having to use those three little words which more often than not are just a disguise for the fact that we're not actually being loving toward them? We say, I love you, as though they carry all the weight of our love, but they cannot possibly do that. You are simply a clanging gong, a gashing cymbal. Don't just speak that you love people. Walk in love and show their love, even as Christ has done here. It doesn't mean that those three words are not necessary. If any of you men go home and say for the next two years, I'm not saying I love you to your wife, that is not on me. Mm, that That is wholly on you. I won't do that to my wife. You don't do that to your wife. But... You've got to do more than just say that you love her. You have to show her. You've got to do more than just say you love your friends and your relatives and your neighbors. You've got to show them your love. Jesus' strength is indeed a discerning strength. But his strength is also immensely dependable. It is dependable. And some might question the love of Jesus in a passage like this where it is clear that not everyone is going to be saved. 
And they might say, well, wouldn't he be stronger? Wouldn't his love be mightier? Wouldn't it be grander and greater if everyone were to come to salvation? Why is it that he only saves some people? Why are only part of the people part of his flock? Why not have love win overall, which is the famous book that Rob Bell wrote, where God's love is depicted as being so strong that eventually all will come to a saving knowledge of grace. This is nothing but universalism. Now, some theologians try to soften this and get around this issue by appealing to choice. And they'll say, now, here, here's what you got. You've got God who loves the entirety of the world, and he, he loves it equally. But what he's going to do is he's going to make his grace freely available to everybody and then say, those who believe become part of the flock of God. So while God loves all people, he loves their choice as well. For after all, we can go back to John 3.16 and we can read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you believe, if you trust today, you will have everlasting life. And he even goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so these, these theologians will come back and say he loves everybody equally, his love isn't particular for his sheep, but he gives them a choice. He allows them to choose whether they want to be saved. In several respects, this logic fails remarkably. Especially if you're trying to talk about how much God loves the world and you're trying to make his love grander. It doesn't work simply to say that he has passed the buck off to you. By doing this, you're basically saying that God loves the free choice of his creatures more than he loves their well-being. He would allow you to choose to rot in hell forever rather than overcome your freedom of choice and to have you dwell with him. That doesn't sound like a, a way of combating the idea that his love isn't strong. It would be like watching a loved one harm themselves and be unwilling to step in. It fails in logic, but it also, and most importantly, fails in terms of the revelation. They've got their cause and effect all backward. They would say, you don't believe, so you don't belong. But that is precisely the opposite of what Jesus says in this passage. Notice what he says in verse 26. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He's saying that your belief is due to your being part of the flock. It's not the reverse. You don't become part of the flock when you believe, but you believe because you're part of the flock of God. You have been chosen out from before the foundation of the world. It is indeed your choice. It is indeed your faith. It is indeed your belief that matters. But you believe because you were chosen to believe since before the foundation of the world. And this makes him utterly dependable. Those on whom Christ sets his love those on whom he has set his strength will always be saved. They will always be saved. His love is never failing. It is utterly dependable. When he sets his love on you, when he calls you out, you will come out. When he remakes you, you will be truly remade. His love is always dependable. His strength is always strong. It means that we are not relying on anything but Jesus and that his strength will never fail. All who believe will be saved. And they will believe of their own free choice. Make no doubt about that. And all who believe will hear his voice. 
And all who hear his voice will follow, and all who follow will have eternal life, and all who have eternal life will receive the glorious crown that Jesus Christ has kept for them. Every single one. Jesus Christ's strength is utterly dependable. We don't have to rely on our own might. We don't have to rely on our own ability to keep and to seal his grace on ourselves. We don't have to drum up faith on our own, but we rely on Jesus to make himself known to us. The same voice that is capable of crying out and having all of creation spin into existence is capable of calling to you and remaking you in an instant. Making you desire and want to believe and to trust in him. When you go to take an interview for a job, they're always going to ask you this question, and it's always the silliest question, but they have to ask it because this is important information, but there's no way you're going to get a good answer to the question, what are your weaknesses? It was the most annoying thing to ever have to prepare for because no one has ever sat before someone and actually uttered what their weaknesses are, right? They, they don't sit there and say, listen, i got to be honest with you, I'm super super lazy. I'm going to show up late the vast majority of the time, and I'm probably going to turn in pretty poor work. I just, it's just how I roll. You're going to say, I'm, I'm super arrogant. I'm probably not going to listen to anything my boss says, and I'm going to do what I want to do anyways, and I'm probably going to create a lot of havoc in the workplace. Uh, no, one, no one ever talks like that. They don't say that. Instead, what they do is they take something that's really, really good, and they try to make it sound kind of poor, like, I, I'm a perfectionist. I, uh, I just, I care too much. Uh, this is the way. This is the way everyone works. There's no. There's no good way. And you can laugh, but you've done the same thing. Like you've been in these interviews, and you know that you've got to answer that question, but you don't really know how because you can't answer it totally honestly, if we're being honest. But Jesus can. What makes him capable of saving people? Jesus, is there any weakness that you have? Is there any weakness? If you were going to be applying for Savior of the world, what weaknesses do you have? And he would look very honestly at you and he would say, I have no weaknesses at all. My strength is utterly dependable. It doesn't give out. All that the Father has given to me, I keep. All that the Father has sent me to save, I save. All of them. They are mine. Satan cannot pull them out of my hand. The world cannot pull them out of my hand. I will make them desire to crawl into my hand and they will be mine and I will be theirs. I will know my sheep. The fact that some do not believe is not a limit on his ability to save for the Father has never asked him to save them in the first place. Friends, remember that your Jesus is utterly dependable. There will be times when you think that he's let you down there will be times when you think that he is allowing a hurt and a pain that is unbearable. There will be times when he will give you trials that seem like they are unmanageable by you. And I'm going to tell you flat out they are. But they're not for him. He is utterly capable of providing you any strength that you might need because his strength is utterly dependable. <coughs> Lastly, his strength is divine. His strength is divine. Whose hand are the believers in? It's a really interesting little passage. In verse 28, they are in Jesus' hand. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he turns right around in verse 29 and says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So is this like you 
an arm wrestling situation where they both got their hands clapped together and they're trying to steal them out. And they say, no, I, no one can steal them from me, not even the Father. Whose hand is it? It is clearly one hand. It belongs to both. It's clearly a symbol. Hand in the Old Testament typically refers to a metaphor for power or possession or somebody who holds someone's fate in their hand. Is often used to indicate destruction or enslavement, as in Jeremiah 22. As I live, declares the Lord, the Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. In many places, to be in God's hand, as opposed to the nation's hand, is a place where you are protected and safe and secure. In Psalm 17:7, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. In Psalm 20, verses 6 through 7, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and summon horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And it can also mean destruction for God's enemies. Psalm 21.8, your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Clearly here in John, it's referring to his ability and his power and his might to save the people who come to him. He will save them to the utmost. He will save them from their foes. They will have refuge and peace with God. And from this salvation, no one will be able to snatch you. If you are in the hand of Jesus, there is absolutely no one who can pull you away. You can't, Satan can't, no angel in heaven can. Nothing can remove you from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as you take the hand of your child when you walk him across the street, so God places you in his hand and he keeps you safe and secure. There is nowhere better to be. The ones who find themselves in God's saving hand are assured of their place with Christ and God forever. This salvation is given by both the power of the Son and of the Father, and of the Father, and this power stems from one source, one essence, and therefore it is the same. That is why if you are in the hand of Jesus, you are in the hand of the Father. To be saved by the power of the Father is to be saved by the power of the Son. To be saved by the grace of the Father is to be saved by the grace of the Son. Therefore, Jesus turns around and at the very end says, the Father and I are one. Now, we're correct to understand some limitations on the statement, given that in John 17, through 23, we are said to be one like the Father and the Son. Jesus says there, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus cannot possibly mean that we are one with God in essence, like he is one with God the Father. It's an impossibility. One cannot be made God. But this likely speaks to the action and the will of God. Jesus acts to save those whom the Father gives him, and the Father, all those whom he gives to the Son are saved. Neither the Son nor the Father ever waver on this, 
When the father desires, the son desires, for their will is one, and therefore they are always in sync, and they are always in harmony. Therefore, because they have the same will, their actions are likewise the same. The father sends, and the son goes. The father seeks, so the son seeks. The father acts, so the son acts. Jesus says, I have seen the works of my father, and I always do the works of my father. Jesus is able to make these great promises precisely because he's divine. He has the power of the creator. His love for us is secure because we were wrapped up in the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, even as we talked about last week. But his strength for us is secure, for we are wrapped up in the Father's will for us, found in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Both will and act to save us. The strength of Jesus is not the strength of a man. The strength of Jesus is the strength of God himself. Can wind and rain, flood and famine keep us from God? No. He has created all of these things and he is powerful over all of them. Can a horse and chariot, rider and kings keep us from God? No. He is Lord over all lords and he is king over all kings. They have no right or claim on us. Can we ourselves, sinners and hard-hearted as we are, keep ourselves from God? No. For we are called by God to a new life, reborn in Christ with new hearts to love and to serve him with gladness. As a friend of Jesus is divine. If he is the very creator God and he created you once, he can make you again, for his strength is divine. Friends, we are secure in no one else but Christ. Who else could promise you such things? And keep them. Who else can look at you and say, if you come into my power, I will keep you and no one can harm you. Your parents can't say that. The government can't say that to you. Your teachers can't say that to you. There is no one who offers you protection and can back it up the way Jesus Christ can. Christ is the very image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is very God of very God and light of light. Therefore, he is powerful. Not only to make such promises, anyone can make them, but he is powerful to keep such promises as well. This is why we come to our Advent season. This is what we are to remember during our Advent season, to remember the coming of the Word made flesh, that God has dwelled with us, that he is indeed Emmanuel, that he might call us to himself, and he might make right all of our sins, that we might be one with him as he is one with the Son. That is the goal and the work of Jesus Christ. That is why he has come. So now we approach the Lord's table. Where we recognize these truths, we see them in action, and we take the grace that Jesus Christ gives to us in his death and resurrection, because it is indeed food of the kingdom. The kingdom of God does not exist in food and drink, Paul says, but it does exist in this food and drink. For born to us today is the King of Israel, who is indeed mighty to save us. Let us pray. Father, give us grace through Jesus Christ, your Son. He has called us out from among the people of the world that we might be the rightful bearers of his image. Father, we know that we will fail. We know that we are constantly sinning before you. Our hearts are not made fully right before you. Our heads are not yet fully clear of our sin. Our flesh still tugs and dwells among us, but we are striving to glorify him in this world. Strengthen us for your glory, that the name of Jesus might be rightfully honored in our lives and in the world. Let us remember his great appearing and eagerly seek his second advent on this earth, even as we say, come, Lord Jesus.
We ask for these things for your glory and for our good. Amen.